Good morning. My name is Peter Robertson. For any of you I haven't met, I'm one of the elders here. Mitchell invited me to preach today on Psalm 137. If you're familiar with the psalm, a valid response might be, why? If you went to our Christian education series on the psalms, a variant of that question might be, why again? The simplest answer is, it's God's Word. The fuller answer is that Psalm 137 tells us the story of our church family in a dark time, and learning about that equips us for our dark times. It tells of God fulfilling His prophecies and guides us to ponder how God deals with His enemies. Finally, it's a text that should drive us to repentance as we remember who our God is and what He has done for us. Please bear with me as we encounter some bumps along the way, but please remember our God is bigger. Please join me as we go to our Father in prayer. Dear Father, uh, we thank you for the gift of your word that you would reveal yourself to us. Please give us ears to hear today and write in our hearts the lessons we need to serve you on the paths you call us to walk. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 137. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there, we hung up our lyres. For there, our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, Lay it bare, lay it bare down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. This is the word of the Lord. To paraphrase Dorothy's comments to Toto upon landing in Oz, Christian, I have a feeling we're not in Psalm 23 anymore. Psalm 137 is one of the psalms known as the imprecatory psalms, psalms that call for judgment and curses on the enemy of God. Make no mistake, this is a tough psalm. It asks a question it doesn't answer, and it closes with one of the most brutal lines in all of Scripture. If you're visiting with us today or aren't sure if you believe in Christ, thank you for being here. Um, I ask for your patience as we wrestle with this passage together. If anything I say, say strikes a nerve, please feel free to come talk with me or Mitchell afterwards. There may be a line, uh, but we're not opposed to questions here. And so I'll start with one question. Quite simply, what do we do with this? I suggest that we start with the belief that the Bible is not a collection of dozens of books written by dozens of authors, but instead dozens of books written by one author, God, working through humans by the Holy Spirit. This sole divine authorship allows us, in fact requires us, to interpret Scripture by comparing it to other Scriptures. I don't know who first said, I can do all things through a verse taken out of context, but I think this psalm is a great example of the need to make sure that our interpretation of a passage fits with the rest of Scripture so that we don't draw misleading conclusions. Before we get into the text, I'd like to review a little bit of the history around it. This psalm was likely written around 585 BC. 
The human author is unknown, but is presumably a musician. It takes place after the Babylonians had sacked Jerusalem and taken thousands of Israelites back to Babylon. Historical accounts differ as to how much bloodshed took place in Jerusalem, but it was not bloodless, and thousands were taken from their homes. On arrival to Babylon, the Israelites were paraded in front of the Babylonian court as a prize, a spoil of war, so to speak. It's not clear if this psalm is set during that particular presentation or just some other encounter between the Israelites and the Babylonians. Verses 1 through 4 set the stage of this confrontation with the Babylonians. While the Israelites are mourning the loss of Zion, the Babylonians' exhortation to sing us one of the songs of Zion brings intense grief. As a modern parallel, imagine Russian soldiers goading captured Ukrainians to sing Ukrainian songs for their entertainment. This is not a moment for joyful singing at all. In grief, the psalmist asks, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? I would argue that this question is one that falls to all of us who claim to follow Christ. How do we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? We live in the time after Christ's good works, but before his return to make all things new. We are children of the King, but still live in a broken world. How do we sing the Lord's song in it? I would suggest four steps as we approach this task. Step one, know the song. If I asked you, how do you sing the Canadian national anthem in Starbucks? A good first step is knowing the song. If you don't know the song, you'll need a copy of it. Similarly, we need to know God's song as he has recorded it in the scriptures. What can you tell people about your heavenly father if given the chance? Can you talk about his goodness, his mercy, his wisdom, his power? Can you share your joy and your hope or do people hear from you or conclude from your behavior nothing more than, my dad hates you and he's going to get you one day? Is that the song we're called to sing? How do you learn God's song? Read the Bible. Learn God's song in the songs of God. Read the Psalms. They overflow with God telling us about himself. Read the Gospels. They spell out how Jesus came to save sinners. The Gospels will tell us that we are not saved by being marginally less wretched than our temptations want us to be. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, who was fully God and fully man, who lived a perfect life and died and was raised again to pay the penalty for all our sins. Because he loved us and chose to adopt us into his eternal family, even when we did not merit it. Is that the song we are ready to share with people? Know enough of God's song that when the right moment presents itself, you can share the good news and have it actually sound like good news. Step two, engage the foreign land. In Matthew 28, Christ commanded his disciples, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And they went back to their homes and they changed their Facebook profile pictures and they started the Fruits of the Spirit challenge on TikTok. No. These were not the means of starting the early church, and I don't mean to disparage our modern technology or anyone who uses it, but just to point out that the foundations of the church were intensely personal. The apostles walked from town to town and spoke, and they sat with sinners and formed relationships and loved the unlovable and preached the gospel over and over in a Roman world 
that was quite hostile towards Christianity, a Roman world that was quite honestly more brutal and more depraved than a modern culture we fear may be in decline. In the Roman world, when people went to the Colosseum to watch the saints versus the lions, it involved actual saints and actual lions. Unlike the modern NFL, the lions won. But people in the Roman world were drawn to the light of Christ by the witness and love of Christians they encountered. Christ told his followers in Matthew 5, You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all those in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. In the Old Testament, Jeremiah 29 exhorted the Israelites to seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and, and this is Babylon, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. In 1 Peter 2.12, Peter encourages early Christians to keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. We cannot be a light to the world without interacting with the world. We need wisdom of how to do this, but isolation is not what our king has commanded us. Step three, love the inhabitants. Christ teaches we are to love our neighbor as ourselves, and that this neighbor may well be a stranger we encounter unexpectedly. Loving this neighbor may take our time and our resources. It may even put us at risk of harm. 1 Corinthians' discussions of love remind us that love requires that we be patient and kind, not envious or boastful, not arrogant or rude, not insisting in our own ways. Without these things, the passage tells us, our speech amounts to little more than a clanging symbol. Make no mistake, we still need to value truth and still need to speak truth, but always with love. Christ charges his disciples to love one another, saying, By this all people will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. As we engage with the culture, we have to approach people in a loving way. Step four, rest in God's plan. This psalm predicts that Babylon would be overthrown. But at the time it was written, that claim was honestly ridiculous. What would a captured Israelite musician know about overthrowing Babylon? Babylon was a superpower, and yet Babylon was overthrown. But it wasn't overthrown overnight. It took over 40 years. It wasn't even done by the Israelites. God used Cyrus and the Persians to defeat Babylon. God had his own plan and his own timing. Even when things seemed dark, Remember that Jesus has already won the battle. Our job is to be a light and to be faithful. God will accomplish the rest in his timing and in his way. In verses 5 and 6, the author remembers Jerusalem and pledges to set Jerusalem above their highest joy. For a modern reader, I think it's reasonable to ponder what it means to set the kingdom of God above our highest joy. How do we do this and how we allocate our energy and our resources? Where do we even start? I would suggest beginning with two things. The first is prioritizing the means God has given us to know him. Corporate worship, reading scripture, and prayer. How can we expect to grow in God if we ignore these things? 
You may as well try to grow a garden without seeds, sun, and water. The second stepping stone is remembering that wherever else you find joy in this world, it's a gift from God. Give thanks for the good things in your life and your heavenly Father who has provided them. Be thankful even in your trials, remembering how good God is to you. Use your gifts and service to others for the glory of God. Bear fruit where God has planted you for the benefit of all those around you. Now for the last three verses. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. These last three verses are the toughest. In researching this psalm, I did find a lot of arrangements of choirs that would prepare different ways to sing this psalm. Many of the arrangements stop at verse 6. Um, quite simply, the brutality of the ancient world shocks us. We can't handle it. In our modern world where we talk about microaggressions, this imagery in the last three verses just stops us in our tracks. As we approach these, this section, I think there are two general ideas to take note of. First, this section deals with seeking deliverance from God's enemies, not how Christians settle disagreements among themselves. Make no mistake, conflict among Christians can be bitter and bloody. Any study of history will bear that out. But Psalm 137 is about God's enemies. If you're mad at a fellow believer, I'd suggest Matthew 18, not Psalm 137. Second, the requests for vengeance are proportional to what happened in Israel. Don't use this passage as license to pray that God smite someone over some slight offense. This passage sounds utterly horrible because it is in response to something utterly horrible. Verse 7 introduces the Edomites. For a psalm that has until now been entirely about the Babylonians, Edomites appearing is, is a bit disorienting. It seems a bit like reading The Lord of the Rings and having Frodo ask Gandalf what they should do about Darth Vader. <clears throat> Why are the Edomites even here? Edom bordered Israel, and they were a trading partner, and they had been one of Israel's rivals for generations. As Jerusalem was sacked, the Edomites jeered, uh, as is detailed in the book of Obadiah. The word that the psalmist uses for lay it bare the same language that would be used if someone were being stripped of their garments in an assault. The psalmist believes the Edomites are cheering not just for Jerusalem's defeat, but for an utter violation of the city and the people. The psalmist, though, calls on God, not other men, to remember this treatment and to hold the Edomites accountable. Edom, in fact, is overthrown a few years after this psalm was probably written, overthrown by the Babylonians as well. In verses 8 and 9, the author calls for a harsh judgment on Babylon, including the killing of Babylonian children. Sadly, the practice of killing children in the ancient world was common in conquest and is detailed both in the Bible and other contemporary texts. It is very likely that this happened to the Israelites as they were taken from Jerusalem. Babylon wanted servants and workers, not unproductive mouths to feed. Killing children was a technique of the ancient world to break a conquered people and to allow for a quicker retreat with the spoils. 
In both verses 8 and 9, the author says, Blessed shall he be before asking for these judgments. The question I think we need to ask is, who is he? There seem to be three options for who he is, and I think each option drives us down a very different path of thought and response. The first consideration is that the psalmist trusts that God will work to overthrow Babylon and that whoever God uses will be blessed because of it. In this possible interpretation, we're helped by knowing history and the remainder of Scripture. We know that Cyrus and the Persians overthrew Babylon and were, for a time, a power in the Middle East. But Cyrus's time passed, and the Persians were overthrown as well and faded into antiquity. Yahweh was worshipped in the, in the Euphrates Valley long after the Persian Empire crumbled. While spots in the Old Testament laud what Cyrus did for the Israelites in ending Babylonian rule, he goes unmentioned in the New Testament, reading, blessed shall he be, as foretelling, blessed shall Cyrus be, seems incorrect as his kingdom faded and was not preserved as God preserved other lines that he blessed in the Old Testament. The second consideration is whether the psalmist is calling for action by God's people. By saying, blessed shall he be, this psalm might be an exhortation for someone to take vengeance in their own hands. Public calls for someone needs to do something about this can be found all throughout history. In 12th century England, Henry II was embroiled with a conflict with the Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Becket, concerning the balance of power between the state and the church. When Becket would not relent to the king's demands, Henry was enraged and reportedly called out to his court, will no one rid me of this meddlesome priest? Actually, it was in Latin and it was longer, but of many translations through history, we've shrunk it to that one line. Henry's vassals took this statement as a call to murder Becket, which they did. Was the psalmist using verses 8 and 9 to call for Israel to take vengeance? More pertinently to us, are they a call for us to dispense vengeance against God's enemies? In a word, no. I believe Scripture will make this clear as we consider the third option for the identity of He in blessed shall He be. Verses 8 and 9 do call for clear vengeance on Babylon, but we need to examine other scriptures regarding God's instructions regarding executing justice against His enemies. Fortunately, he writes about it extensively in both the Old and New Testaments. Deuteronomy 7, 9 and 10. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with the one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. Deuteronomy 32:35 Vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip for the day of their calamity is at hand and their doom comes swiftly for the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants Isaiah 65:6 and 7 Behold it is written before me I will not keep silent but I will repay I will indeed repay into their lap both your iniquities and your father's iniquities together, says the Lord. Hebrews 10.30 For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people.
we might still read this and wonder, but what if God means to use us? But I think we should be very careful in presuming to know the mind of God for his plans today. God will use who he will use, but in the case of Babylon, there's little chance Cyrus had the slightest idea he was doing God's work. God speaks very clearly and repeatedly to us on the idea of taking vengeance into our own hands. Leviticus 19.18, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Matthew 5.38-39, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other as well. Romans 12, 19, Beloved, never revenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Why is it left to God and God alone to execute judgment and vengeance? Because only he is holy. Only he is fit to cast the first stone. In light of this, the last two verses read differently, and the blessed shall he be can be viewed as blessed be the Lord. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, Blessed be the Lord who repays you with what you have done to us. In this case, the psalmist, whether they knew it or not, is praising the Lord's promise to deliver Israel from Babylon. They're praising God's plan to deliver this world from evil. The psalm is pointing to our ultimate deliverer, Jesus Christ, who overthrows the sin that enslaves us. For Babylon, the overthrow happened in decades. Some of the Israelites plucked from Jerusalem probably witnessed Cyrus's victory. Other deliverances in the Bible took centuries or more. When God has promised victory over evil and deliverance from our captors, why does it go undone at times? In some cases, God chooses to show mercy to his enemies for a time because he wants to teach his people a lesson. Paul writes on this in Romans 9, saying, What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. A delay in God's justice is never an escape from God's justice. This reality is what should drive us to compassion for non-Christians. God's wrath is real and it is certain for those not covered by Christ's sacrifice. But this psalm does not tell the entire story of how God deals with his enemies, and we need to examine the other side of the coin, so to speak. For we are not here today to worship a God whose only response to his enemies is wrath. We are here because he can also be merciful, eternally merciful to his enemies. As Paul writes in Romans 5, For while we were still weak, At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be safe by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of the Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. 
Does God really do this? I mean, this is Psalm 137. There's no hope here, you say. If it were up to us, or if it were up to us, perhaps not. But God deals with his enemies as he wishes, not as the psalmist might have wished, and not as we wish. Does God really do this? Yes, he does, and he delights in it. When Jesus spoke to the crowd in Luke 15, he offered three parables about his passion for the lost. It was in response to grumbling of the religious leaders who were uncomfortable with Jesus welcoming sinners and tax collectors. The parables tell of the shepherd seeking his lost sheep, the woman searching for her lost coin, and a father welcoming the prodigal son as the son returns from a life of debauchery. I'm sure there were grumblers in the crowd, and I might have been one of them, who would scoff and say, okay, sheep are stupid. You can't blame a sheep for getting lost. And the coin didn't throw itself off the table. Somebody dropped it. And as for the younger son, a lot of time had passed, and, and the anger had probably faded. But we ignore the last part of the parable of the two sons. The father leaves the party and seeks out the eldest son, the eldest son whose self-righteousness has left him where? Separated from the father, just as lost and just as in need of his father's redemption. The eldest son who was so offended by his father's mercy, he refused to join the feast, a refusal that would have been an enormous slight in Jewish culture. But the father seeks the elder son immediately, at the very time the father's anger should have been fresh and fully justified. Mercy may offend us as it did the elder brother when we want to see justice, when we want to reject God's mercy for others and call instead for justice, we risk at least three heresies. The first is wanting to argue with God that somehow he lacks the volume of grace to cover more people, that somehow Christ's sacrifice was some sort of punch card that runs out when we say so. The second heresy is wanting to argue with God that Christ's blood isn't strong enough to cover certain sins. Strangely, these sins always seem to line up with either the things we don't struggle with or sins that have hurt us. The third heresy is the implication that God lacks authority to do with anyone's sins as he wishes. First, he is the sovereign Lord of creation. But second, Christ's death has purchased our sins so completely and finally. He bought them with his blood and may do with them as he wishes. As Paul writes in Romans 9, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Do not fall for the lie that we worship a God whose mercy can be restrained by our fears and our prejudices. Our sins are many. His mercy is more. It can be hard for the elder brother to rejoice when the younger returns. Depending on the sin, we might sympathize with the older or the younger brother. In some cases, we're lost enough to fail both ways a slave to the sin, but still self-righteous about it. But as broken as we are, our Heavenly Father is better, and He delights in having both brothers at the party. 
He will seek us out when we have separated ourselves from him, whether through depraved rebellion, smug self-righteousness, or just being the foolish sheep that we are. Is our God really that good? We'll have times that we doubt this. And when we doubt this, we should consider the life of Paul. We first met him as Saul. He was a Jewish zealot and persecuted the early church. He was part of the mob that stoned Stephen to death. He was feared by early Christians, feared to the point that I think it's plausible early churches probably prayed imprecatory psalms about Saul. Lord, deliver us from the zealot who is attacking your church. Their prayers were answered. God's deliverance, though, was mercy and conversion, not vengeance. Our God has promised he will deal with our enemies, either through his wrath or through his mercy, but always by his plan. Can you imagine meeting your enemies in heaven? Can you imagine spending eternity with them? How did Stephen greet Paul in heaven? What enemy do we have, though, that is more dangerous than our own sin? Christ's life and death and resurrection have defeated your eternal enemy. He will handle our worldly enemies. Four thoughts on closing. We have to confront tough scripture. When we're reading it, compare it with other scripture and lean on other believers, either those around us or those who have written things before us to make sense of it. Second, we're called to sing God's song in all lands. To prepare for this, read the Bible, engage the land, love the people, and rest in God's plan. Third, take joy in what God gives you, even the trials, but put his kingdom ahead of all of it through corporate worship, prayer, and reading scripture. Finally, cry to God for justice, for he is just. Wait with patience, as he has promised that his kingdom will prevail over all evil. But when we cry for justice, we must remember the mercy we have been shown. God may show his mercy through our enemies and may make them our eternal family. God has already defeated our biggest enemies, our sin and the death it brings. He will deal with our worldly enemies to the glory of his kingdom and to our ultimate good. Please pray with me. Dear Father, we thank you that you are a just God and that you have promised to overthrow evil when you reclaim your creation. Please teach us to bear witness to you in the lands you have called us to live. Grant us compassion for our enemies so that we can love them as we have been called. Thank you for Christ's works, for your mercy, and for the Spirit's help. Please grant us the strength to put your kingdom above our highest joy. In Jesus' name, amen.